actually, when we talk about consciousness, uh, that is is generally a topic that would be talked about in uh, kind of the beginning when one is getting introduced to the Dhamma. Mm-hmm. Okay. When uh, they get kind of the picture of, of what's going on and they and the student really gets into the practice so that they can actually see what we're talking about, that's when it's a good idea to revisit it so that mm-hmm. they can, can actually see what we're talking about. Uh, and that uh, the Buddha was um, actually is impressive in that he was quite hard on Sati, son of a fisherman, when when Sati was saying that consciousness is that which runs uh, from this life to that life, experience the result of good and past actions, mm-hmm. good and bad actions from the past. And the Buddha says, no, no, not only is it just simply no, but <laughs> holding that belief that there is something like consciousness or a me that goes from life to life is really missing out on it. That mm-hmm. not only is um, that that consciousness or that self not permanent, mm-hmm. but that it is in fact the worst of all cases dependent. <laughs> It's dependently arising. It's not independent. We have the idea once that I'm born and maybe out of diapers. Now I'm independent. (laughs) And we forget that, no, we're completely interdependent and dependent upon all kinds of things and in all ways. But especially consciousness itself is dependently arising and is not there all the time. Mm That, uh, and that when we begin to have a mind that's really sharp, we can actually see that. Mm-hmm. But there are some things that we can do that help the individual begin to understand that. Okay. Okay. And one of the ways that I would say that is by uh, the, it's, it's actually an interesting task to perform is get something on the screen that you like to read that you know that you're going to be interested in and that can keep your attention focused on it and then set that aside and now go find a video or an audio recording or a talk or something that's on a completely different topic that you like to hear mm-hmm. and that you know that you'll be interested in hearing this. Mm-hmm. And now let that continue and bring back on the screen that which you intended to read. So that now you're listening to something that you want to listen to. And you want to read something that you want to, and you're reading something that you want to read. And what will happen is consciousness will move back and forth between Mm -hmm. eye consciousness and ear consciousness. And by doing so, we lose our uh, our perception, the perception mm-hmm. will break down. It will be going good for this, and then we're over here, and now we've got this to do. And so that, that switch, this is a really good teacher to try to do two things at once with mm-hmm. consciousness, <laughs> uh, as opposed to doing two things with the body. Okay. Which is one of the ways of doing that, like rubbing your stomach and patting uh-huh. your head at the same time. And yeah, but you pat your just... stomach and rub your head at the same time. <laughs> okay. 
So <laughs> yeah. now you're rubbing both, but yeah. <laughs> and you can get into it. You rub one and then you pat the other, and but now you've got the rhythm going, and the training is done inside the uh, mm -hmm. uh, the body itself. But what we're talking about here is getting the perception and the consciousness on that object mm -hmm. of, of, of listening and reading something completely different. And you'll find that at first you're discon disconcerted. <laughs> it's almost like once you throw one of them out and bring the other one in, that you've kind of lost that other one. And so mm -hmm. when you throw this one out and bring the old one back in, it's almost like you're lost now. <laughs> but you can yeah. get over that so that you can begin to take care of more than one thing at a time. In other words, you can bring into your awareness without them becoming distractions. Mm -hmm. And yet we also begin to understand really though I can only do one thing at a time. I can't really listen and read or watch exactly mm -hmm. at the same time. When mm -hmm. we put that together, then we can start watching a video and realize that sometimes we're listening to the dialogue and sometimes we're looking at the screen. Mm -hmm. We can't do both, but we can go back and forth. And that's what kind of makes it entertaining is that, that <laughs> fix it when we're moving consciousness back and forth. So that's why I would recommend, no, what we're going to do is we're going to get an audio, this one thing, and the video, which is completely something else, and begin to watch how the, uh, uh, how the eyes will mm -hmm. stop at a place so that you can listen. But what mm -hmm. the listening continues on, <laughs> unless you actually stop and you go back and re-listen to something, but with the reading, you can stop and then start it again and then stop and start mm -hmm. again. There's uh, various aspects of that mm -hmm. consciousness. And what we realize then is, in fact, that consciousness is not a stream. There is no such thing as a mm -hmm. stream of consciousness. It's more like that. It's like rain. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's more well, like that's quite rain. a good analogy. Yeah, but the rain doesn't come down in a stream, it comes down in multiple drops. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so uh, so consciousness is like a drop of water that falls, and then another drop here, there, and yon, and in fact, they're based upon the senses. Mm -hmm. And so that drop quality, also I have the story about when I was six years old, my dad was a projectionist, at a movie theater, not just one, but I saw all the projection booths in every theater okay. in town. Uh, and they all had the same process in common. Now, this is back in the early 1950s, to where they had a very, very bright light called an arc light that was okay. steady for about 20 minutes, which was also the time that they would have one reel. Mm -hmm. And so there would be a 20 minute and then there would be a changeover so that the guy who was running the projection could get the third reel into yeah. the uh, machine and put in a new uh, arc light so that 20 minutes later he can make that switch over mm -hmm. and turn this projector on and turn that one off. Okay. So during that time, though, in that 20 minute period on that uh, roll of film, there's going to be literally thousands of images. Mm -hmm. And yet, when those images are projected on the screen, it looks like a fluid motion. Mm -hmm. To where, in fact, that's not the case. 
that the light stream, in fact, is interrupted by the, in those old machines by a giant fan-like device that turned around mm -hmm. that's very much like this, that you can see now, and now you can't, and now you can, and mm -hmm. now you can't, and now you can, like that. Yeah, you're and around. Yeah, because otherwise, if it would, uh, you'd see the continuous motion, it would be a blur because the frames would blur together. So in each each frame, one after the other. Yes, exactly. So when that thing is turned off, that's when you hear the flicker of the machine moving the film just one frame. Mm -hmm. And then they show another image, and then they turn it off again. This is 24 times a second. In the really old days, like 1910, they ran at 10 frames a second, which then would cause a flicker. The old flicker in uh -huh. movies mm -hmm. was because there's not enough frames, and you can see that flicker on and off. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. At about 10 frames a second, or once every tenth of a second, is about the best we can do for processing anything. <laughs> All right? Which means at 24 frames a second, it looks like continuous motion to the, mm -hmm. to the eye. Uh, mind complex, to where in fact looking at the machine and how the machine actually delivers it, you can say, no, this is 24 frames that were shown still, mm -hmm. followed by uh, a short time, followed by another frame. Mm -hmm. And that there is a time when there was nothing happening. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is what we mean in the Buddhist term of sunyata. Okay. Okay, when, <laughs> when consciousness is not there, can you, do you know that? And you're beginning mm -hmm. to say, yes, I can tell there's a gap in this consciousness. It's very fast, maybe at about 10, 10 frames a second or so, but there is something happening inside the mind, and then unless we start paying attention to it, we're not going to catch it at all, and we think that, uh, that consciousness is streaming. Or, mm. in fact, no, it's intermittent at best. Yeah. <laughs> but also, luckily enough, unremitting. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, I've noticed this uh, first time uh, non-conceptually when doing walking meditation. So mm -hmm. I was focusing, I was trying to catch a lot of detail in the soles of the feet or just in the foot. And I noticed that I was walking. And when I had that clear detail in, in the foot, I wasn't actually seeing, like I had the conceptual image or a memory of what I saw before, but I wasn't actually getting any new visual stimulus. It was just like the old image in my head, like, a, yeah, this, I was, I had kind of had the map in my mind, but there was no seeing because I was so focused on the foot. Okay, that's strange. Am I walking without seeing? And when constantly, oh yeah, I'm not seeing. It's I'm uh, remembering the last frame I saw actually, the visual frame. And then I saw it when switching from foot to foot, because again I wasn't feeling both feet. I was just feeling mostly one foot or one area of the foot and the foot that I was stepping on. And though I had the general feeling of both feet. In that moment, where the sensation was present, there was actually no other sensation from the other foot. It was just, yeah, that was the initial effect. And sometimes That's I noticed. An interesting way of getting it started is with mm -hmm. that type of walking meditation. Let me ask you this question: When you're doing that, are you wearing shoes? 
No, I'm uh, yeah, barefoot. You're doing it barefoot, okay. And so what about the, the consciousness then of watching where your foot is going to land or noticing your path or, or the visual part of that? Because if you're out there walking barefoot, especially... Now, it's possible to get a, um, a frame. That mm-hmm. uh, uh, they have those frames at a lot of different monasteries and sometimes the frames start with nothing but just two trees. Or maybe a stick in the ground and a tree at the other. But they can become very formalized. I've even seen them with concrete. That they have a little strip of concrete down about 20 meters and then more concrete. And they fill it with sand or something that the dirt is different than uh, in other walking meditation paths. But really the walking meditation that the monks do every morning on Bendabat is just out. It doesn't have that boundary. It's just going out. And so walking barefoot along the road. I learned all about walking meditation, though I had practiced it so much in, in, <laughs> in doing Mahasi. But I learned about what walking meditation was when I went out on Bendabat with Ajahn Po. Okay. <laughs> he, he would find a gravel road that had the biggest pieces of gravel that he could find. <laughs> <laughs> And also sometimes the paths would be slippery in the mornings because of okay. the dew or the rain mm. or whatever. All, I mean, it was literally an obstacle course. <laughs> and on top of that, during the rains, uh, required to carry an umbrella. Now, uh, mm-hmm. most modern mo- monks' bowls that you will see and will they have, have a, cover. a bowl bag, not just the mm-hmm. lid or the cover, but a bowl okay. bag. And sometimes they're knitted quite beautiful with a stand and all of that kind of stuff. Okay. All right. Achan Po would not allow the bowl to be put in a bag. So what I did was secretly take, took a white string and, and had a little tiny hole drilled. So at least I had that. Uh, actually, it was, yeah, it was a dirty white string. It fit in with the gold. <laughs> but he saw it immediately. <laughs> I did not even get one bend butt out of that spring I put on that pole. No, you've got to carry the thing. You've got to carry the bowl in a certain kind of way and then carry the umbrella, except that when it's time for the bowl to be open, you've got to manipulate both the umbrella and the lid of the bowl to open the bowl and present the bowl. Mm-hmm. <laughs> for filling, and then put the lid back on the bowl while you're still holding the umbrella. <laughs> and doing this in public. So I actually cheated because I went to practice privately after I saw that I couldn't do it the first time. <laughs> I actually practiced it at home or in the in the kuti. Can I actually hold this bowl, take that umbrella, uh, holding it up, and take the lid off the bowl, and then put the lid back on the bowl and continue to hold the umbrella without making an absolute idiot out of myself. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, this is back to the walking meditation. Because doing all of that while barefoot, out in a literally landmine filled uh, (laughs) area. I mean, this is like boot camp for Buddhist monks. Wish I'd have had a better attitude about it (laughs) than I do now. (laughs) 
<laughs> so, um, anyway, walking meditation, that's part of it, is to, to note where you're walking, to note where you're, you're putting that foot. Mm-hmm. But now, what we're actually doing with the walking meditation, you see, when we're sitting in meditation in the, in the hall, sitting down with the body not moving, the eyes closed, it's supposedly quiet, uh, mm-hmm. The kitchen, even if it's cooking food, is way, way over there someplace, and you don't hear smell what they're doing. And so <laughs> you're left with, in a way, a kind of sensory deprivation. Mm-hmm. And this is so that the student can begin to watch what the mind is doing, start paying attention to that sensory input. That's the only mm-hmm. thing that we have is an input for the consciousness. Oh, wish that were true. Oh no, sorry, that body breathes. <laughs> that body wiggles around. <laughs> there is rising, falling, touching, sitting. So in fact, working with the mind, we also have to work with the body. But on walking meditation, we have to open up the body and the eye door, the senses. We start looking at where we're walking and other things mm-hmm. like that. And so it becomes much more of a... Um, uh, being able to manage a lot of stuff, being able mm-hmm. to have the consciousness move back and forth around to get to get it fluid. Mm-hmm. That it doesn't just get stuck on own off, own off, own <laughs> off. But it becomes okay now that I know that it's off a lot of the time, let's be able to start to um, uh, to manage it. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways of doing that is by learning to read and listen to something simultaneously or letting let us say even though we're not paying attention to both of them simultaneously there they are mm-hmm. there they are okay and, and the, uh, the simultaneous is not it's going to be back and forth and back and forth and back and forth with consciousness mm-hmm. now there is another part of that which would we would say a deeper object then, or a deeper practice, would come to making sure that we're not taking any objects at all mm-hmm. for processing. This would be truly what we would call choiceless awareness, mm-hmm. but not the kind that beginners practice, <laughs> but this would rather be the kind that we mean by no object. That as soon mm-hmm. as the eye catches an object, we move. As soon as the the, um, uh, the thumbs catch an object, of twirling the thumbs, or you hear something with your ear, like uh, a machine buzzing, or whatever it is, mm-hmm. we don't even take that long. We just keep moving, keep floating, keep the mm-hmm. uh, the consciousness moving among the senses, and within one sense, moving around to various things. That's mm-hmm. a kind of a deeper practice because that really does take attention to recognize that we are paying attention to something and we better stop it. <laughs> <laughs> and so this is a deeper level of sunyata. But all of this has to do with the practice, literally, of basically let me see if I can say it this way, doing this while the mind is got the jhana factors of first jhana collected together. Mm-hmm. We don't have to go all the way into fourth jhana, 
but yet we're doing the kinds of things that can be done, uh, or let us say the rationale or the reason or the value in the fourth jhana. Mm -hmm. And in this way, we can actually, and it's referred to as the Vipassana jhanas in, in the mm -hmm. sense that you're getting benefit and the value of the fourth jhana without the arduous work of getting the mind that way. Mm -hmm. And this is, this is how that's accomplished in the sense that we can make intellectual sense out of not taking an object. And so by not taking an object, that means that we're now not giving the perception machine much input. Uh -huh. Or that we're giving it so much input that it can't process. One of the, either way that we think about it, this is what's happening. So that we begin to make a separation in the mind between perception and consciousness. Mm -hmm. So consciousness is bare knowing, perception is what we do with it. Mm -hmm. We manufacture something out of it and the parts of the manufacturer have to come out of our sankara or out of our past. Mm -hmm. So basically what we're saying is this is one way of really, really being in the present moment because we're not <laughs> even using our past well enough to even make sense or understand the, the present moment. Okay. <laughs> we're just letting it be without trying to make sense out of it or try, trying to understand it. Uh-huh. Hello, kitty. Hello. <laughs> So, this leads to what is in the suttas referred to wrongly as infinite consciousness. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not infinite. What we're talking is, is the word boundless is what we're mm -hmm. looking at. And what we mean by boundless doesn't mean it goes way out over there. <laughs> boundless just means that we're looking at the boundary between consciousness and perception. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. That the boundary that we're looking at now is the boundary of what is consciousness and just consciousness. So when consciousness mm -hmm. now is unbound from perception, mm -hmm. the process of the unbinding of consciousness is just is just consciousness. Mm -hmm. Okay. And there's doing very very little perception. Basically, the only perception that we're doing is the perception is this is consciousness. But that's <laughs> about the only thing that we've got. Mm -hmm. This is why that is state is called neither perception nor non-perception is because the perception is so weak that the only thing that we're con perceiving is this boundary with consciousness. Mm -hmm. which is not taking any objects. And so therefore there's no real fodder for um, perception. Mm -hmm. uh, but right now you talked about neither perception or non-perception. I think that's the, the fourth formless jhana or uh, formless realm. So there was uh, the boundless space or uh, then boundless consciousness. And then uh, there was maybe nothingness, the perception or the... And then it was neither perception or non-perception, or, or was it reversed? I forgot how it was then. You can do that when the, the, the state of boundless space, thanks for bringing that up. Basically what that means is, is that our perception of the body, 
begins to weaken. Mm -hmm. And because the weakening is there, the boundary between what is the body and what is not mm -hmm. the body becomes very weak. Mm -hmm. That the boundary for where is the arm and where is the air on the arm mm -hmm. becomes an interchanger or let us say a, you know, like in, in Korea, they have an area that, that's neither North Korea nor South uh -huh. Korea, it's called a no man's land. Okay, well, you can also think of it because many border towns are like this, that when you get to that border town, Mm -hmm. Everyone in that town is actually uh, ignores the boundary between mm -hmm. those two countries. In Thailand, there's a city called Seren that's like that. That Seren is a border town, is a, is a city in Thailand, but it's also a city in Cambodia. Mm -hmm. But because it's a city, the people who live in that city go back and forth. They don't see, you know, it, there becomes mm -hmm. no boundary for them. All right. That's how we begin with the arm, that the arm becomes, starts to lose its fixed boundaries. Mm -hmm. The body can feel like it's floating. It can feel like a, a blob rather than, uh, you see, with our proprioceptic perception system, mm -hmm. that we know exactly where each finger is. All you have to do is is put your consciousness on that finger and the perception will be exactly where it is because it's using that proprioceptive sensing system. Mm -hmm. Okay, but that can get very weak. And so we feel like a blob or we feel like we're a big statue, 60 feet high. <laughs> yeah. These are the kinds of things that will happen when people are entering into and abiding in the fourth job. Mm -hmm. But we can get those kind of feelings and sensations in the first jhana. We know we're still in the first jhana, but we can experience all of those things. Mm -hmm. Because we're, we're beginning to intentionally make sure that we're not putting our awareness on where is the boundary between the body and the air, mm -hmm. between the arm and the air. We're recognizing that that's indistinct that that boundary is, is faded away. It's mm -hmm. not infinite space, it's just space. That's all there is, that we mm -hmm. live in, in, in an environment or a space or something. We live in the sea, and we don't <laughs> pay much attention to it, just like the fish who's in the sea, he doesn't know he's in water until he is pulled out of water. Mm. Okay, I, I guess that we don't know that we're on the planet Earth and the environment of the planet Earth and this all of a sudden and we're in outer space, but that's not, going. I mean, we're going to be in more danger in outer space than the fish is out of water. <laughs> but we have to do understand that there is a sea that we live in, not just a sea of air, but a sea of furniture, a sea of buildings, a sea of... Uh, uh, microbes in the air, all kinds of stuff mm -hmm. is going and And it literally is to see. And so that's, and, and the way that we can gain the understanding of that is by stop taking individual objects mm -hmm. or perception, but rather let the whole thing sort of be there and the consciousness is moving all around until we begin to recognize the environment that we're in. Mm -hmm.
Okay, so this is the quality then of separating the consciousness from perception. And this is where then the last part is when we're completely successful at making that separation between consciousness and perception is when there's just nothing left. There's just nothing. Just, but, <laughs> but we know that there's nothing. <laughs> but there's nothing coming in, nothing going out, nothing being processed, and it means a whole bunch of nothing, but it really is nice. It's a really nice. <laughs> nothing. It's nothing. <laughs> and all of these things can be experienced with the first jhana without having to go through the sequence formally. Okay. And so, um, just by going out, you, in fact, walking meditation um, is, is good like this, that you can actually fairly easy because you're paying so much attention to what the body is doing, that all verbal thinking, we just don't have room for it. We're working too much. We're watching feet, we're watching uh, mm -hmm. with our eyes to see where we're, I mean, there's just so much happening we don't have time to think about what we're doing anymore. We're just out doing it. Mm -hmm. And so in that regard, that's very much like second jhana. Mm -hmm. All right. Because there's not, not much thinking done. There's nothing to think of much. There, mm -hmm. we're, uh, we're busy looking, observing, watching, and and managing in this case managing an umbrella and a lid bowl <laughs> <laughs> and that will take a monk into no mind state mm -hmm. yeah i think that's why the people from zen are also big on the posture and body movements and being attentive to those and performing them in a certain manner Yes, this is actually what we mean. Uh, the, the language, uh, the word is used is called restraint. That the monks will learn to restrain mm -hmm. themselves. So we don't let the mind wander around. We restrain the mind. And in this state, because the mind is so strong, that we can restrain it even from taking any new objects. And by not taking any objects, we can go into a state of n not talking at all, just, you know, just observing, just, just noting, not labeling. There's a different <laughs> kind of noting. If we're labeling, then we're back into talking. <laughs> but it's good that you're beginning to experience these things. So I would say, keep, keep going at that. Mm -hmm. Keep uh, uh, that that practice up. Begin to watch the gaps. Mm -hmm. That's right now, those, the key. <laughs> right now, I don't know if I've noticed the gaps, but I noticed like a hard cut between the frames. Something when one sense stops from one, uh, like when seeing stops, and when uh, seeing another thing, where maybe feeling or hearing comes. And I also notice how the quality of mind. So there's the knowing mind that kind of knows these sensations, and the quality can change a lot. So it quite between frames quite abruptly it can have a like kind of a qualitative change in the the mind, and you can notice that. Wait, wait a minute. Just a moment ago, the mind was completely different. Now it's something else, and it's a bit. Uh, it can be a bit discon disconcerting, but <laughs> getting more accustomed to it. But it kind of breaks up that feeling of solidity. 
The Buddha had something to say about that. Okay. I think I mentioned it before. It's in the Anguttara in the Wands. I'm not familiar with which verse it is. But he says, the mind, O monks, is fast. It is so fast I don't even have an analogy for it. Now, when the Buddha can't come up with an analogy for how fast the mind is, <laughs> that seems that it's pretty fast, faster than anything else we know. And 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 you're just pointing that out. The, mm -hmm. the mind's doing this, and then it's doing this. Mm -hmm. How did it yeah, jump from there to there? Yeah, and I had a bit of this observer identity, but yeah, the observer is, I can see how it is constructed. I think you need to see more of it to kind of, finally accept it or intuitively. But yeah, there were like gaps in even in the observer. And okay, I'm not the observer. There is. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. We're not always the observer. <laughs> right. Sometimes it's on and sometimes it's off. Mm -hmm. In fact, you could say that people are generally not even aware of it at all until they start practicing sati to start waking mm -hmm. up. And what is then waking up is that observer. Mm-hmm. And that we don't expect the observer to be there all the time. This is why the refer it's referred to as unremitting in the sense that, yeah, it goes away. Uh, it keeps coming back. <laughs> but coming soon, it's coming back. <laughs> in theaters near you. <laughs> Guess which theater is so near? <laughs> That is so cool. Yes, coming back, coming back, it's coming back. And so that sati or that waking up is actually the waking up of, wait a minute, I can watch what's going on here. Because before that, for instance, we are that thought. Now mm -hmm. we're the observer of that thought. Or before I was feeling, I went, I'm angry, mm -hmm. waking up. And now I'm not the anger, I'm the observer of anger. So look at that. That shelf is moving around, isn't it? Yeah. At one point it's a thought. Now it's a feeling. Now it's an observer. And the longer it spends as an observer, the the better, more clear we'll be able to see mm -hmm. that and what else is happening. So that's the whole point: is to wake up, or let us go into observer mode. Or another way of talking about it is let's come out of the instinctual behavior that is so easy to fall into and wake up this frontal cortex. Let's put the, the big supercomputer in gear and let it do its job of watching what the reptilian brain in the back is doing. <laughs> and so this is this in fact is showing that consciousness is dependently arising from here to there. It's sometimes in the back of the brain, sometimes it's up front, sometimes it's in feeling, sometimes it's in thought, sometimes it's in sense object. Mm -hmm. The more we're capable of managing these sense objects, then the easier it will be to see that, that things are constantly changing, constantly uh, um, at... Um, Basically, that we're living in a, a sea, a, a huge environment that is constantly in motion. But that we stop frame or we freeze it, 
by perceiving it. But if we're not perceiving it, we let that flow go on and it almost is overwhelming. There is just so much sensory input happening all the time. We recognize we can't keep track of it all. We just can't. There's just so much happening. And you don't have to be out in the woods like I am. <laughs> I mean, there's just anywhere you are, there's always a trillion more things that are happening that we could possibly actually note or pay attention to. Mm -hmm. But it's not our job to do that or even catalog it. That's just sort of the awe or the awe-inspiring mm -hmm. result of not attaching to anything in particular. And people will fall into that state quite naturally in the sense of sometimes it happens with a sunset. Or sometimes it happens as a vista, like people will go to the Grand Canyon or Niagara Falls or something like that. And they're overwhelmed with all of the input. Like when they're looking at a sunset, nobody's actually looking at the sun itself setting. Mm -hmm. But they look at the beautiful, glorious clouds and the sunshine mm -hmm. and the way that the, uh, the light plays. And it's just a, a, a huge, giant magic show. And, and by beginning to take in all of that stuff, we go into a state of awe. Just like that. <laughs> literally overwhelmed with with the sensation and that's just visual mm -hmm. so when we add because we of the skill when we add all of the senses into that awe we become completely overwhelmed with, wow there's just so much happening all at once <laughs> but the natural way would be um doing it at a uh the Grand Canyon or the Niagara Falls, and yet look at what so many people are doing. They're getting their cell phone out. I'm going to take a picture of it. <laughs> <laughs> Thinking that the photograph of this uh, situation will be awe-inspired. They can show it to all of their friends, and the friends are not inspired by a photo. <laughs> No, you need that bit. You need the widescreen, the little, yeah. really <laughs> widescreen of reality. <laughs> and we have that available when we can get the mind focused and, uh, and steady and stable. Uh, and so this is part of that, uh, the sensations that we allow that to bring on a, a, a state of, wow, isn't this so? <laughs> overwhelmingly nice and so this is and we and we start or we can practice that with these little techniques that I've told you about the first starting with the, trying to read something and, uh, and and listen to something else at the same time to start watching consciousness move back and forth and then eventually getting to the point of intentionally taking no object that I'm that I'm seeing. In fact, the, the language is, it is called gazing. Mm -hmm. Gazing is not looking. Mm -hmm. Okay. Looking means looking at. Gazing mm -hmm. means just, you know, not in, not focusing on anything, but just taking in all of it. Mm -hmm. They talked about this at the Zen Dojo when giving instructions. They said, eyes open, seeing, but not looking. So just 
<laughs> you see? <laughs> yes, that's what the Zen thing is teaching, is, is actually giving this uh, as instruction to beginners, and the beginners don't have a clue about what they're talking about. It's only when we have a, um, a foundation of our practice that mm-hmm. we can talk about the teacher Samuppada at down at this level. Because mm-hmm. we're actually talking about uh, perception and sankara and how we're not going to be creating much of an internal image. Mm-hmm. But, but that internal representation has so much data in it and so little processing in it that it's almost overwhelming. It is overwhelming. You just become literally whelmed. <laughs> and and also the trick is is that we're not processing much. The perception is doing very little and is not mm-hmm. digging in the past to get old data. Oh, I remember how this sunset used to look. We're not doing any of that. We're just letting this one come in in great uh, amount of data. So, and still, it's intermittent. <laughs> still, there's that consciousness that goes on and off and on and off and on and off. At about 10 frames or more a second. And so study well, look closely, <laughs> investigate. And, and you can see that, that, that gap. So before you could see that you could see this and that. Now what you're going to do is you want to see this, and before that happens, you're going to look at that gap in between. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. To see that this is a drop and this is a drop, and it's not a stream. It doesn't stream from one to the other. Uh-huh. It is individual frames that we have in the mind, just like the movies. Mm-hmm. And uh, actually, I was yeah work on that. And it was uh, actually inspiring when I first saw it, because when we're meditating, we're kind of trying like to focus on the raw experience. And sometimes the mind kind of tells, oh, what's the value with this? But when you see it, oh, maybe I'm wrong about my whole perception of reality. Okay, there is quite some value in just watching the raw sensate experience. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I was also thinking how this actually makes sense with uh, how we understand physical reality with the neurons because the neurons fire on and off they're not firing all the time so it doesn't make sense to have something oh exactly yeah. exactly that's the whole idea then is is that in fact we can go down to the point of talking about it in the sense of quantum mm-hmm. that we know electrons will move from valence to valence and eventually can get kicked out depending upon an amount of energy, but it takes a certain threshold. Mm-hmm. Let us call it 100% for just whatever. <laughs> and from this one to this one, if it has 98%, it doesn't go. Mm-hmm. If it's got 114%, it goes, and sorry about the 14. <laughs> but you either, you either come up to it or you don't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, it's either can you climb on top of that ledge or not. That's the whole point. <laughs> And so there's a threshold there. And that quantum then is in the photons. There's quantums of energy. We have mm-hmm. quantums of all, but from that point, you could actually say that the, the human brain that developed in that 
physical environment mm -hmm. is also going to have that quantum technique of firing. That's mm -hmm. a beautiful thing. Thanks for telling me about that. Of course, I've heard that before, but it never made uh, a good connection. But okay. yes, even the mind works in a quantum way, mm -hmm. which has its own and off quality to it that mm -hmm. we're talking about. So even this, the, the neuroscientists, they understand this, <laughs> that we're not always there. <laughs> <laughs> that sometimes, some, somewhere in that tenth of a second, we're on, and sometimes part of it, we're not there. <laughs> yeah, it's really wonderful that we can keep this, like, this intricate machine going with <laughs> linear, oh, actually, Actually, unconscious uh, activity is parallel, but the conscious activity is just uh, linear. It's simply linear. And it's wonderful that we can kind of keep this going with the types of processing and just with the linear processing one thing at a time that we can experience this. It's <laughs> remarkable. There's, there's two things with that that we've got to pay attention to, and that is, is that the human body in its environment is absolutely marvelous. <laughs> It's unbelievably complicated. It's it, it itself, the body and the mind itself is far more complicated than we could understand how complicated it is. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's quite a marvel. All right. And on the other side of the coin, the same coin, is, <laughs> is that the human body is woefully inadequate yeah. compared to what we would want it to be. <laughs> the human mind, I mean, I'm not nearly as smart as I think I am. <laughs> which leaves up leaves us with Descartes. I think, therefore I am, was completely wrong. Better to say, I think, therefore I think I am. <laughs> but really what's going on, I think, therefore I think, that I can think better than I really can think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's usually the case. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so we have both ends of that. Is one is the human being, the human body, and the human being and mind is absolutely marvelous, but it's still not what we try to imagine it to be. So we need to find a way of, of seeing the marvelousness that it is, but also keep track of the fact that, you know, it's, it, it's off half the time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it, it's not a functioning, sorry, neurons fire, and then they stop firing, and then they fire again unremittingly, but they're not there constantly. And we have this concept of everything is constant. No, things are not constant. Everything <laughs> is up and down, intermittent, arising and falling, everything. Cause and effect. And one of the things that they have, um, actually the physics was going after the question, answering the question, why is the speed of light actually the speed of light? Mm -hmm. And under what conditions, etc.? Because you, prob you probably know that the speed of light is not constant. For instance, you know about uh, water, that uh, the speed of light in water is not the same as it is in air. Therefore, if you put okay. a pencil, it will look bent mm -hmm. in the water because of the distortion. And that distortion has to do with the speed of light. Also, you, you've heard 
I, I don't know what it would be in your country, but in English, or, or excuse me, in American, with miles per hour, I've got them, all of them down. I, I memorized that one time when I was really into it. But the speed in, in air is lower than the speed in outer space. And the mm -hmm. speed in outer space is also lower than it is in an absolute vacuum. But they okay. don't know what it would be like if it was in a vacuum that was so uh, much vacuum that even space itself was missing. That part <laughs> we don't know. What would the speed of light be if the speed of light could be measured when it was no longer bound by space? <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah, right, but what does speed to... mean outside of space? Hey, we <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. Now we're getting down to it. What you're really asking is, what is the speed of causality? What is the speed of causality? In other words, if 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 uh, we can measure light in a wave, then what causes the waving? Mm. If it goes that way, why didn't it keep going? Why did it turn around and come back like this? Why did it have to go up and down or in ripples? Mm. And what's controlling that? This is where we're getting down to the idea of causality, which is much, much faster than any camera. Why? Because the camera itself would have to be a series of causalities. Mm -hmm. Even down the wire, when we're actually whatever length of the wire it is, that the, the there's going to be causality all the way down mm -hmm. that wire to get the one electron from one end to the other, <laughs> or to get them to bump each other until one pops mm -hmm. out. There is so much causality going on, so that means that actually at at the speed of light, that proves that the causality is much much faster, and yet it's still at a quantum. Mm -hmm. Everything is quantumized, which basically we can come back to the point is, is that if you've got a, uh, a cascading dominoes, mm -hmm. then the cause effect is that one domino hits the other domino, that domino then uh, falls over and in the process it hits another domino. Or multiple dominoes. <laughs> or this one domino can hit several dominoes. <laughs> And then some of the dominoes it hits will go on to hit other dominoes, and some dominoes that it hits will just fall and not hit anything. Okay, so it gets really complex by that. But this is what we're looking at is the causality or the cause and effect is that when one domino hits the other, that's the cause for the second domino to mm -hmm. fall. But while it's falling, now it becomes the cause in a chain reaction to the next domino falling. And we live in a whole sea of that. That's happening all the time with every molecule. Every molecule is bouncing around with every other molecule at a, such a high rate. And even inside those molecules themselves, there's a whole bunch of stuff going mm -hmm. on. <laughs> and so it just, when we understand it intellectually, then we can see how we can, in fact, become overwhelmed with all the stuff that's happening, because there really is that much happening. Trillions and trillions of things are happening right here, right now, every tenth of, every trillionth of a trillionth of a second. A lot of stuff going on. But now we're just live, uh, using that in a conceptualized way of just talking about it. Mm -hmm. The question is, 
can we get the mind into the state to experience that? And the answer is, yeah, we've got a yeah. few techniques, right? <laughs> we can play with that and start working with it so that we can get ourselves into that state of awe, into that state of wonder mm -hmm. by not paying particular attention to anything and just stop processing and stop trying to make sense out of it and just let <laughs> it flood in. Sort of like a really, really broadband receiver, if you know what I mean. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Where, yeah, we're listening to like a thousand radio stations all at one time, but we're not trying to follow or listen to any of them. We're just listening to this noise and being overwhelmed by all of it. It's just, I don't know how to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, no concept will do it justice. But yeah, I get it. <laughs> I can get it even more, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, okay. <laughs> well, go play with these things and uh, experience, and I'd like to hear about it when you when you call again. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's quite an you interesting topic. Okay, do you have any uh, questions or anything? No, I think I'm good. Well, remember, at the end of all of this, there's just nothing there. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, we'll see you. Thanks, Thanks for calling. I, I really enjoyed our talk. Uh, me too. See you soon. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>